Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Going Deep with Aaron Watson. I'm Aaron Watson. If you have not done so already, please be sure to hit subscribe, whether you're on Stitcher, iTunes, listening on the website. Uh, subscribe to the show so that you can check out further episodes, stay on top of shows as they come out. Also, encourage you to check out the backlog of episodes we've got. We've got a ton of really good ones. Record-setting hikers, Paralympic gold medalists, trailblazing entrepreneurs. Check it out. I think you'll really enjoy it. But today's guest is Sean McComb. Sean is a fellow alumni of the University of Pittsburgh and in 2014 was named the National Teacher of the Year. Sean uh, is a very hardworking, thoughtful guy, and I think regardless of your profession, the lessons and the wisdom that he shares in today's episode is applicable in so many facets of life. You don't have to be a teacher to learn something from this guy. I encourage you to sit back, enjoy the next hour of conversation, take something from it. And without further ado, Sean McComb. Sean, thank you so much for coming on my podcast. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me, Aaron. I'm really excited. Been a big fan of the podcast. <laughs> so I want to eventually get into the whole process of what it was like to be named uh, National Teacher of the Year, among other things. But I want to actually start off by just really at its base, what motivated you to become a teacher or continues to motivate you to be an excellent teacher? Sure. So, um, so my journey to the classroom began uh, as a student. So it began in the classroom, but from the other side of the desk. So I was kind of always a good student, always good at school, uh, you know, talking elementary years, middle school years. But, you know, some things were happening in my family during that time that were pretty turbulent. So, you know, started with uh, started with divorce, and then out of divorce, I lived with my mother predominantly. Um, alcoholism runs in our family, and it really took root in in her at that time and really started to affect our lives. That resulted in, uh, you know, being between jobs, some uh, a lot of emotional turmoil and stress on me. Um, high school, this started to really come to a head. My mom was very ill um, consistently out of work. We were on food stamps, meals on wheels. I found out later that my grandmother was keeping a roof over our heads at the time. Um, and my relationship with my mother, not understanding at the time that it was, you know, substance abuse, but, um, but that I, you know, I just thought that she was sick, angry, unpredictable, chaotic. And, and that was the life that I was living in. And I was really frustrated by that and didn't really have, uh, the, compassion that I needed at the time. And, and it was in, and that's a long way of saying that, you know, my home life was pretty tough and, and I found solace and safety at school. So school was the place where, um, I was supported, where I felt cared for, where I was able to connect with adults who, uh, I felt like believed in me, made the choice to believe in me, you know, a choice they did not have to make and were consistent role models who showed me kind of the, the man that I wanted to become. And so it was in that context of seeing possibility down the road, but also the way that people made me feel about myself, made me feel at a time when I didn't really believe in myself because of what was happening at home, um, made me believe that I could have a bright future, that I could become something and someone. And so when I made it through high school and uh, was, was heading off to college and thinking about, you know, what I wanted to study, what I wanted to, to be and do and spend my life doing, I thought, you know, I want to pay forward to kids going through difficult times when however they, you know, the, the roots of those difficulties are, however they manifest, I wanted to make them feel uh, cared for and supported 
and um, and valued and that they had great potential the way that um, those teachers in my life had made me feel. And so that was the the basis of the decision uh, to go into teaching. And um, and and I think that's why a lot of us get into the profession is because of great role models and great teachers who somewhere along the line made us say this looks like something that you know you can be passionate about you can have fun with you can make a real difference in people's lives and uh and so we follow in their footsteps that's very inspirational one of the things that i uh from you know different listening to different podcasts reading books a common theme in anything that you do is really having to find success is to really have a strong initial light uh, a, a fire lit for the direction that you want to go. So having something, you know, when that when you have a really hard day or a hard week or a hard month, that kind of keeps you focused and keeps you driven to accomplish as much as you can. Um, you are a avid teacher. Can you explain what avid teaching is? Yeah, so, so I'm in my 10th year um, of working in Baltimore County, Maryland here, and I've spent uh, eight of those years teaching in a program called AVID. AVID is a, is a college readiness program that exists across the country and even in, uh, in Australia and in some Department of Defense schools across, across different borders. The AVID program is, is kind of rare in that it targets students from the academic middle. So these are your students who are not your top flyers, but not your kind of not so much your at-risk dropouts either, but the students who don't often have programming targeted to them. Uh, these are students who are in our school almost always uh, hoping to be first-generation college students in their families. The vast majority of them come from low-income or impoverished homes and are often from underserved backgrounds. So that's kind of the, the targeted population. Kids from the middle who are traditionally underserved, hoping to make college dreams a reality for the first time in their family. The, the, you know, the program is part of a daily schedule for students as part of their day, so they take AVID as a class. In the class, there are kind of three pillars of our work. One is focused skill building, so that's reading and writing skills, uh, you know, which are what um, most research at the college level say students are lacking and leads to, to struggles at the university level, but also some soft skills as far as uh, time management, organization, uh, speaking skills, listening skills, um, some, of, some of those pieces. So that skill building is one pillar. The second pillar is uh, academic support. So twice a week, students come to the AVID class looking for support in their physics or chemistry or trig or world history courses. And they'll work in collaborative groups with other students taking that class and a tutor. And sometimes that tutor is me. You know, I thought I was long, long done with chemistry, <laughs> but it, uh, it kept crap cropping back in my life. Sometimes it's a student who is an AP level student um, in that content area. Sometimes it's a college student who uh, we hire part time to do this work, who leads those collaborative groups and helps students who bring a question to class, get their question answered so they have that you know responsive feedback and are able to go back to class having that skill deficit filled and ready to continue their learning. And then the third pillar is all about the college process. So that's um, SAT prep. Uh, that's the walking them through financial aid, walking them through the application process, letters of recommendation, college essay. You know, when you, when you have not had, um, in many cases, family members or parents go through this process together, then there needs to be a, you know, a lot of support from the village in managing the process, taking them to visit colleges. Um, kids in our program go to see between eight and ten colleges if they attend all the, the field trips available to them uh, for their first three years in high school to be able to make informed decisions because oftentimes, you know, they don't have the opportunity to visit otherwise. So that is the pillars of the class. And then what's what's most fun about it for me is that um, I have the chance to loop with students through their high school experience. So uh, from the first day as crazy freshmen till the day they walk across the graduation stage. I get to be a part of their journey, and, and my role is really to support them, to believe in them, to help them see and believe in a, a future and a vision for themselves that sometimes it's really hard to see yourself 
uh, when you're 14 years old. Um, but to to kind of walk alongside them and be their their teammate and partner in their you know in their journey. Was this a program that you targeted as you know that I want to work in this area? Were you selected? What was the process of developing into filling this role? And how common this is kind of another question? How common is our avid programs across the country? Yeah. So uh, for me personally, you know. When I was in school, I, you know, so I grew up in, while my circumstances were certainly very challenging, they were challenging within a pretty affluent suburb of Philadelphia. So when I went to college at University of Pittsburgh and did my student teaching in Pittsburgh public schools and took some social foundations classes, I really started to get a sense of my own privilege. Uh, You know, despite my personal economic circumstances, home circumstances, the privilege of the public school I was able to attend and what that was able to do for me. So when I moved after college to Baltimore County, um, I said, you know, my preference, there are 24 high schools, I said, you know, my preference is to go to a school where the students are a little bit more school dependent, where the um, talent and time of the teacher might be a little bit more determinant in student outcomes. And so I ended up at Patapsco, which which was a great fit for that. My first year, I was not involved with the AVID program. It was also AVID's first year in in the school. And and I was just teaching ninth grade English, and I was teaching a course called uh, Patriot Pride, which was just kind of a freshman seminar course, really loose, not a lot of curriculum. And uh, that wasn't, you know, I thrive on structure, and I think so do 14-year-olds. So um, without a lot of curriculum, I decided to kind of create five pillars within that, uh, five pillars of character that we were going to study and look to and took a lot of high-level interest current event reading or profiles of, you know, people like Pat Tillman or uh, Jim McLaren, if you're familiar with his story, and and have students delve into character through kind of studying these eras. Um, And... And students really thrived, and I think that I drew some attention from the administration for how I took what was uh, a pretty undefined class and really gave it a lot of definition and ran with that opportunity. And so at the end of that year, when the person who had you know, started the AVID program was leaving and it was not being left in a great place, the uh, one of the people in charge actually found me on hall duty one day as I'm as you know in a tough place. There's nothing like... You know, there are a few challenges I, I have ever come across other than, you know, being a new parent that is as challenging as a first-year teacher. And I was having one of those existential moments uh, of frustration in my first year with being at school until 8 o'clock at night and really, you know, all the challenges that come with starting up as a teacher. And I was wondering, you know, is this is this right for me? Is this location right for me? You know, do I need to go back? to Pennsylvania with some more support structure around me. I was, you know, I didn't know anyone when I moved to Baltimore here. And that was the day that someone came by and said, you know, would you be interested in taking over this program? So it was a kind of a serendipitous moment uh, for how I was asked. And then as a second year teacher, I'm given the charge to kind of grow this program into something that can truly be a pathway out of, um, out of poverty for some kids and a pathway to college. And I think in many ways that, challenge, opportunity, really um, accelerated my development as a teacher and a leader um, to really take that charge on so early um, in my career was something I really think was kind of like hitting the turbo button. To answer your other question, AVID is is prevalent across the country. Uh, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, and some states choose to invest in it a little bit more heavily than others. But, but you know, in Maryland, there are 24 districts, and at least half of them have AVID programs to some degree. Some school districts choose to invest in putting it into their schools that are uh, a little bit lower achieving and maybe need that additional academic support for students. And it's huge in certain states, Texas, California, Nevada, um, have really invested in it heavily. And, you know, but the what is common about it, wherever it's um, been implemented, is that it has, you know, fantastic results for students completing college readiness standards, uh, for acceptance, for closing gaps between different demographics. So, uh, you know, it really is a bright spot in, in education.
Gotcha. And I want to get into what you did to grow the AVID program over your years in that role. But you touched on something really interesting, which is the experience of the first year teacher. So a few of our fellow Pitt alumni, uh, alumni of Pitt Ultimate, have, are also teachers. And in conversations with them, uh, they've kind of talked about, you know, the first year you're really just kind of drinking from a fire hose, so to speak, as far as trying to figure out how to put together lesson plans and just consistency from a day-to-day basis in what you're presenting to your students and building relationships with other teachers, administration, and whatnot. And I actually also have two cousins who I'm very close with who are also teachers as well and went through similar experiences. And it seems like a very common theme that comes up. So if you, or I don't know if you mentor any young teachers now or when you talk to them, what advice would you give to that first-year teacher who's really trying to jump in and, and absorb as much as they can but are at times overwhelmed by the enormity of the task they're taking on. Yeah, so so the best advice I got that I have since passed on to many others actually came from uh, a, com- a mutual friend of ours, Brent Bellinger, his father, who is a longtime third grade teacher. And over winter break when I was visiting with them, and I was you know just completely exhausted, as you mentioned, how challenging it is, he said to me, that the, the true difficulty is that in this line of work, you can always do more. There's always more that you can do for kids. You can give them more feedback. You can, you know, find more resources. You can re- refine lesson plans. There is, it can, it can be never ending uh, and all consuming if you allow it to be. And what he said to me was, you can always do more, but you have to do enough that you can, you know, look at yourself in the mirror, but you can't do so much that you can't keep going, that you can't make a career of this. You know, so it, it was it was that that moment for me of recognition of, you know, you can let this eat you alive, but then it will cut your career short and then in the long run what are you, are you are you going to be able to do as much for kids? So, it was about finding that sustainability and um and then, you know, what does that look like on a practical level as far as advice to teachers? It looks like uh, having the humility to admit weaknesses, to, which was a, certainly a challenge for me as a first-year teacher. You know, I wanted everything. I wanted to thrive. I wanted to be great. I wanted it to be perfect. And so that meant for me um, too often trying to figure it out on my own instead of uh, opening myself up to the expertise of others who had, you know, already walked down that path. So I think it, it's about kind of finding your tribe within any given faculty in school and finding the folks who, who are, are open to supporting you, can, can give you materials, can work you through challenges and are willing to share their time for you to do that. Early on, I think I think the the difference between the first year and every other year is that the first year often requires so much creation, whereas the years that follow uh, need more tweaking and refining of of work. And and the first year there's so much guesswork in, you know, what, how will students react to this? How will they handle this? I was a 22 year old college graduate and they were 14, 15 year olds who were in many cases not reading on grade level. And so it's it's a challenge sometimes to put yourself in those shoes for the first time and really think through through their eyes and their experience and create, you know, design learning and lessons for them the first time, not sure of what that kind of looks like and feels like. So the that's the challenge, I think, as a first year teacher. Um, and you know, the few, a few of the challenges. And, you know, and I think this is a lot of where we have found answers from a policy perspective is leaning on, you know, assigning mentors to these new teachers or, or hopefully pairing them thoughtfully with, you know, based on personalities. But helping these people, you know, new teachers not feel as though they are alone in the process. Um, and, and there is a balance there, you know, because they are also professionals and they want to figure it out. And sometimes you need to make your own mistake. And and that's a challenge. But at the same time, every mistake that we make isn't just hurting us, right? It's not just a challenge for us. It's hurting kids. So so it's a, it is a difficult um, line to walk. That's why there's so much talk around 
teacher education programs at university levels and how can they be more effective so that that first year isn't so much throwing people, you know, into the fire, um, you know, as we, instead of getting them acclimated a little bit more while they're while they're students. But um, so the the advice would be to to have the humility to lean on others for help, um, to trust people who have done the work before, and to be uh, really thoughtful when we depart from that kind of uh, wisdom. I think that's that's fantastic advice. Thank you. Getting back to the AVID program. Tell me about the evolution of the program itself in your school in Baltimore and also your evolution as a teacher uh, from, the, from your first year through uh, your nomination for Teacher of the Year. Yeah, so, so AVID started with one group of about 30 students that first year, uh, and I, I met them in May when of, of uh, I guess that's, 06, 07. So May of 07, when um, when I met them and learned I'd be taking over, and their teacher was uh, leaving our school. Um, and uh, so that from there we added, you know, a grade level of students each of the next three years until we were up to about 120 students in the program total. Uh, that that was uh, kind of the planned capacity at the district level for the uh, for the program. You know, one of the evolutions that we had to really learn and be smart about was to kind of look at look at the data and try to find some uh, pinpoint some indicators from middle school to guide our recruitment and our student profile for identifying the kind of student that was successful in the program and through the the course path in high school in order to be um, ready and accepted into college. Um, so that, so as a, you know, an example, it meant that uh, we found that students who took Algebra 1 before coming to high school were far more successful in, in a number of ways in order to get to math that helped them in not only SAT, but their college entrance exams to take uh, on course, on great, on uh, four credit coursework in college. Um, just because of the the math courses they were able to take if they had taken algebra one in eighth grade, um, so that's something that that you know wasn't a a hard and fast rule because we could help have kids double up um, while they were in high school, but that's you know an example of how we learned and evolved within the program uh, to make sure that we were recruiting and serving students who would who would most benefit. From the program, it's one of the challenges for you know students in the middle for for admitting that this program wasn't magic that you know it, it, we we couldn't just take anyone and um and have them thrive and be successful but that this kind of program was most successful for students who were had some self motivation um, but needed support in order to make the most of their potential. Uh, AVID stands for Advancement via Individual Determination, so there needs to be some some hustle, some chutzpah in these kids uh, from from the jump, and then you know we can kind of accelerate that. But it isn't it isn't the program for the student who is kind of oppositional uh, or or not interested in uh, in succeeding or or working hard, doing their homework, studying you know in high school. So we we learned some lessons that way. Um, the first so the first few graduating classes were not were not what you know were not strong as far as admissions rate as far as um, scholarship numbers it was it was not what we had hoped for at the same time there were some students in those classes who probably would not have graduated high school but did because of the support that they were given um, it just we just weren't kind of fulfilling the mission that that we had set out to fulfill how did how did that compare to other programs at that time because it was still across the across the board a, a relatively young program is that correct uh, so the so Within my district, which is uh, at the 24 high schools, um, there were six or seven that were a few years beyond where we were. The program has existed since 1983, so it's as old as I am. Um, and when it was started in California, of course, it's it's grown leaps and bounds over the years. So, so it's interesting. You know, it's it's hard to date the program because there is on some level, some institutional knowledge that exists and is much older than our experience in Baltimore County. But um, at the same time, the kind of on-the-ground, face-to-face support and feedback that 
that programs you know need frequently from people who have walked that walk and are maybe just a step or two in front of them, um, that was not as readily available to us. Um, so then AVID class of 2012 uh, comes along, and, and this is uh, one that I'm looping through, and that class is, is the first class that we had where 100% um, of the students who graduated from the program were accepted into four-year colleges. So we learned some lessons. Uh, we, we worked really hard to support students. We, we learned some lessons about getting parents on board in the process much earlier. Uh, making sure that they knew what they were getting into when they were promising college to their students, what they should be thinking about with financial aid um, and being part of the process. Uh, we learned a lot of lessons there. We learned a lot of lessons about what level of coursework we need to encourage students to take as far as standard honors AP, um, at what point in order to help them be successful, uh, and, and learned a lot of lessons. And so that class started a really good run for us, and the last, so starting with that class, the last four graduating classes, 98% of students admitted to four-year colleges. Each of those graduating classes, the students in the AVID program have uh, earned as much merit scholarship as the rest of their graduating class combined. So we're talking uh, wow. 30 students out of 230 or so students are earning as much merit scholarship. So, you know, it's been it's been powerful. It's been powerful to watch. What's you know, what's more powerful than those numbers are to know the kids, know their stories, know their challenges and what they have overcome. So, uh like a quick example, my la the last class I looped through was class of 2014. Um I was sitting at the same dining room table I'm sitting at tonight, uh scoring their college essays about this time 2 years ago and and giving them feedback and I'm going through the, the stack, and there's some things you would expect, Aaron. There's, you know, a, a grandparent who made a difference, a service project they did, a, a best friend who went through a tough time. And then I hit a list of these, uh, these eight essays in a row. And two of them are about the day that that student was evicted. Uh, in both cases, it was in middle school. For one student, it was his 13th birthday and the last day that he had seen his father, who chose to leave the family then. For another girl uh, who was evicted also was the day she took over managing her family's finances. For two other students, it was writing about seeing a parent who was fighting a substance abuse. Uh, one, it was watching the parent overcome that addiction and how powerful that was. For another, it was watching them succumb to the addiction and how challenging that was. A student wrote about having the police raid her home and arrest her brother one morning. And then she, and then she heard about how she went to school that day and aced two tests, and she has earned nothing but straight A's her entire high school career while that is happening around her. Another student wrote about living in a car for 18 months. Another student wrote about um, herself, a teen mother, being physically abused, kicked out of her home, and 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 trying to navigate the world as a homeless teenage mom for the rest of her uh, of her some of her junior and the rest of her senior year. So, you know, you read these stories, and these are the kids who are able to do these incredible things, and I can't tell you how much hope that can give a person to, to know these kids and know their stories and know what they're able to do if we make a choice, and that's a choice individually, societally, institutionally, to give kids the resources that they need given the challenges that, you know, we allow them to grow up with. Wow, that's that's very powerful, Sean. Thank you for sharing that. I know that your personality, you're a very humble guy, and you are happy to talk about the accomplishments of your students, but I needed to talk about you becoming National Teacher of the Year. So I'm guessing that was a nomination process initially by someone else in the school? Yeah, so uh, it was an initial nomination from uh, my principal at the time. Uh, he sent me an email saying... I'm nominating you for our district teacher of the year. I sent him an email back saying, I think these are five people far more deserving than me. For the record, one was my wife, and I remind her of that constantly. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, four other people I just saw were amazing teachers in the school. He refused. He said, uh, I'm nominating you or no one, uh, and I'm going to send your names. So you're going to have to tell someone else that you're out. So he sent it in. That starts the process. Uh, it's, it works a little bit differently 
uh, in different states for how they end up with a state teacher of the year. But um, here in in Maryland, they select it from district teacher teachers of the year. So there are a hundred and I think seventeen schools in my district. So each has a chance to nominate a teacher. Uh, we have to fill out just at that that initial level is just a few kind of short sentences, short few like three to five sentence answers, a resume, and the recommendation from your principal. From there, they select some finalists. The finalists then interview with a panel uh, from, with students through uh, assistant superintendents in our district. And that panel then selects from those five finalists the district teacher of the year. So, you know, I, I didn't know that there was such a thing as a teacher of the year when I was a student, when I became a teacher. I had no idea that this existed. Um, you know, my family from, you know, outside of Philadelphia were nice enough to come by, come down when, when that was announced. It was a surprise announcement and um, surprised to me. And I thought, you know, what what a wonderful career highlight and accomplishment that I was the Baltimore County Teacher of the Year. Never imagined, you know, anything more coming. But the District Teacher of the Year is then entered in the state level competition. Uh, for that, there's uh, in total, a 17-page packet that needs to be submitted that includes three letters of recommendation, professional biography, uh, essays about uh, trends and hot-button issues in education, uh, a philosophy of education, and a few other essays. Um, from there, that, that um, selection committee chooses seven finalists, and then those seven finalists are interviewed by a selection committee. And uh, again, at a so then there's a ceremony in October, and I was so certain leaving the interview for Maryland Teacher of the Year that I did not stand a chance that I did not invite my family to come to the ceremony. Uh, my wife did on the last day behind my back uh, book their tickets. You know, I, I didn't want to let them down. I was, you know, I, I didn't want to see their faces when I wasn't selected. And to see them let down, I just thought, you know, they, they won't come. I'll go, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll enjoy myself. But then, you know, I'll meet whoever was, was selected the teacher of the year. Uh, so then, uh, again, surprise announcement. I was selected. I couldn't believe it. Still can't believe it on many days. And, and then the state teacher... Uh, sends those 17 pages of writing uh, on to the National Selection Committee. I was, you know, this was, it was a difficult thing to, to get that recognition, uh, particularly as, uh, as a teacher. This, the work is so humbling. Uh, you know, every single, I mean, today when I was teaching students, things did not go as I expected them to. Kids had questions that I couldn't answer as well as I would have liked. Um, kids submit work and I question how, how good the feedback is. I mean, this is, you know, the type of work of, of developing skills in other human beings and other human beings that are, you know, still in the throes of puberty, that are, that have a ton going on, that come from all different home lives. There are so many variables in the work that if you are really thoughtful, work really hard and have high expectations, it is incredibly humbling. And so, you know, to then be, you know, put on this pedestal as a, as, you know, a model, as someone uh, to look to, to represent the profession is, is a, is a really difficult thing to go through. And so I found myself at a conference uh, for English teachers in Boston, listening to these other people present about what they did in their classrooms and, and you know, the, the, the work their students were doing. And, and I just felt so inadequate to have this title and this position. I was really going through a crisis. And uh, at that at that conference happened to be a former National Teacher of the Year. And I, I basically walked up to her in a hallway out of nowhere. And I said, uh, I'm the Maryland Teacher of the Year this year, and I feel completely unworthy. And I don't know what I'm doing. And I feel like a mess. <laughs> and, and she very graciously uh, just kind of said to me, you'll grow into it. Uh, and then the State Teachers of the Year have a couple of conferences where they get together and get mentoring from national teachers. And she said, you know, so will you be in Arizona in January? And I said, yes, I'll be there. And she said, we'll work through it there. So I have that, that pause, that challenge. Just before I head out to that conference in Arizona in January, they announce four finalists for the National Teacher of the Year. And 
funny side story is that I happened to be at the White House that day. Um, I was invited there um, by Michelle Obama's staff to actually view a filming of, or a, a viewing of a film and and then have a conversation with her staff around what we can do to help students in challenging situations go on to and graduate from college. I was there with people who run a lot of mentoring programs at the college level, head of the college board, you know, people who are doing doing this kind of work and they wanted some I guess some teachers there. And so we're in the we're in the White House theater of all places. Red carpet everywhere including the seats. I have a little White House napkin, I have a little bag of popcorn. I you know, it's like is this real life as I'm sitting there? And the first lady's chief of staff comes in and says, you know, we have the director of the film, the producer, so-and-so, so-and-so. And I was just told we have a finalist for National Teacher of the Year. Where's Sean? <laughs> and, like, I hadn't, I hadn't told any of these people. I, was still, I couldn't believe it myself. And uh, I just kind of sheepishly raised my hand. And I'm like, yeah, that's, uh, that's me. I guess I should get used to this. So, so I'll fast forward to there's a selection weekend. Uh, meet with the panel uh, of judges. They put you through a couple of scenarios where, similar to where you'll find yourself if you are selected. So there's a, a, a cocktail hour where you'll have to kind of uh, schmooze with, with people who you don't know. Uh, then there's a sit-down dinner with uh, judges, and they rotate you through, so you get some, some one-on-one, one-on-two conversations with judges. The next day, there's a one-hour question and answer. Um, that, it's actually 50 minutes of question and answer follow, fo- following a 10-minute presentation by the teacher, and then a, and then a press conference. And so I, I did all of that, and I did all of that when my wife was two and three days overdue with our first child. <laughs> came home from there. My wife was induced. She had our son. Uh, came home from the hospital. Four days later, was home for four days, and then I got the phone call from uh, our state superintendent telling me I was selected as the National Teacher of the Year. Do I accept? And so having uh, no idea what we were getting ourselves into as parents. <laughs> Everything was a blur, no one's sleeping. Uh, I said, you know, I asked my wife and she said, she gave, she gave me a thumbs up and I said yes and we were off on this, uh, this next adventure. Wow, so. that's uh, quite, quite a ride. <laughs> yes, it was. <laughs> so to kind of fast forward and, and maybe just give a real brief summary for people, uh, you got to meet President Obama. You were recognized, uh, you know, in magazines, articles, all sorts of media covering your accomplishment and your recognition. And then after that, you went on a year-long kind of tour, doing some uh, speaking. And we actually caught up briefly when you came back to the University of Pittsburgh to give a speech, uh, basically summarizing your kind of the work you were doing with AVID and then also your vision for how the, I don't know, industry of education, but teachers can take their game to the next level, so to speak. And basically, I just wanted to ask from that speaking tour, the experience of getting to travel across the country and meet all sorts of different teachers and be in this kind of opposite experience where you said you you met the National Teacher of the Year and and you were going to these conferences to learn, and now you're out there doing the teaching of the teachers and and kind of what that experience was like and how that affected your philosophy on teaching or how you had to come to maybe formulate a more developed philosophy of education. Sure. So, so yeah, that's a... that was a really accelerated period of kind of personal growth. And a, and a lot of it was realizing, you know, w- given the nature of the work that we do and how humbling it can be, that there was a lot to share, that, you know, I had done a lot of learning, that, that growing that program and particularly the insights given to me as a teacher by by having to be a partner to students in in their learning as kind of a whole child, right? So it's not just them learning my content area as an English teacher, but me listening to students and thinking about supporting them so they're successful in all content areas and understanding the way that they that they view school and they experience school um, did give me a lot of insight and accelerated my growth as a teacher in ways that many people are not afforded. So you know, so so my big piece of learning there was that, you know, too often we discount the subjective experiences of school. And by that, I mean the way that students interpret what happens to them 
the narrative that they create for themselves as a learner, anything from, you know, I just didn't get the math gene or, uh, you know, I'm just not good at math, which is, of course, you know, we've, we've mapped the genome. There is no math gene in there. But really is, do they tell themselves that narrative or can they get coached toward a narrative where they look at where they apply effort and where they revise their strategies and how they go about their kind of owning their learning and managing their learning? And, and can we help students identify growth in that process? And that was, those were the lessons learned for me as an avid teacher is how much, you know, it is, it, how much of what happens in learning really requires a lot of, a lot of personal risk. Uh, there's a great quote from Parker Palmer that the enemy of learning is not ignorance, but fear, right? Fear of taking that risk, fear of, of being vulnerable and judged not good enough, not smart enough, what, what have you. And how do we create environments and circumstances that help to alleviate that fear and give children the support and care that they need to take, to take risk and to grow? And that, was, that is something that is not often articulated when we think about school reform and when we think about education. You know, the, the, the popular answer is to test and punish more, um, to hold teachers more accountable, to kind of double down on a factory model. And, and, you know, what I saw transform students was exactly the opposite of that, was instead, you know, looking at it as from a much more humanist perspective and thinking about that child as a, as a whole being and thinking about how they feel about school. And, and, and that's what really matters. And there is a lot of research to support this and bear this out that, that if kids have a sense of hope for their lives, that if they feel that they have a sense of, of efficacy and a supporting environment and they value what they learn, that's what motivates students. It's not a test score. It's not, you know, some payoff that's forever down the road. Uh, it's these, it is a lot of these other factors that we aren't paying attention to enough right now that ed a lot of classroom educators are aware of because that's what has made them successful. But we have a challenge bringing that message into a, a policy realm. And so that, that was a lot of uh, what I shared and what I learned uh, over the course of the year. And, and for me, it was a process of, of finding a way to articulate that in a way that different audiences could hear it, could learn from it, could think about next steps for them, whether they were a classroom teacher or a building level principal or a state superintendent or a legislator um, and what that meant for them at different levels. It was a fascinating kind of intellectual experience to have to, to manage that and think about audiences and think about how to, how to reach different people who come to that work from different perspectives. Gotcha. So, so what's also really interesting is then having gone on this tour and, you know, you're talking about policy, you're talking about affecting legislators and uh, other very serious influencers that can really affect the macro environment of the teaching community to then go back this year to teaching, get back in the classroom when there were probably opportunities for you, I'm guessing, to take a different path away from the classroom. What brought you back? Yeah, so so what what it was it was interesting. I was I was prior to all of this process beginning thinking about, you know, I had I have <clears throat> since being a second year teacher been urged to consider administration a different route to you know, I have I've had every principal that I've had has has pushed me and told me I was overdue to leave the classroom. Um and and I just felt that I wasn't my my work there was not done that it, what got me out of bed in the morning was still being able to interact with teenagers, um, was being able to, to give to someone else something that they weren't able to, to give back to me and, and that I found that endlessly fulfilling. And, and what I realized taking this year off and having a year away from the classroom was that I missed it terribly. You know, there's, there is just, when it is done well, there is a certain energy and intensity to, uh, to a highly functioning classroom that is, that is a rush that is addicting that um, 
and and it is such a puzzle that if someone is i think you know intellectually inclined to do that work as well and they have the other you know the the patience for it the patience for kids that that kind of combination that you know i i i love the work and so i realized during that year away that i was still thirsty for more and wanted to do it and and that with that kind of headspace to step back and think about it to meet great teachers across the country who are doing exciting and different things that I could come back and do it better. And so so this year I am I'm actually in the classroom half time and helping support the the learning of administrators and instructional coaches in my district half time and in my half time in the classroom I'm uh, a 10th grade I teach 10th grade students English and uh the work that we do right now is you know I can't imagine going back to what I used to do in the classroom which is kind of funny to say after you get you know you get an award for what you did before but you know right now my students are researching social justice issues that they have personally selected and are motivated by and on a given day I have students who are working on you know research creative writing doing Skype interviews who are collaboratively planning an awareness campaign to launch within our school and community about these these issues that they are personally motivated by and as they're doing all of this you know work that is really interest driven that is you know meant to to thrive on their curiosity they are at the same time developing the same reading and writing and speaking and listening skills that they might be if i was forcing a book on them that i that i hope they would like or forcing a project on them that they didn't have the agency to make a choice about and and i just have seen a different level of engagement and enthusiasm for the work uh by allowing kids that choice and and so you know so i come back and i have a new idea and i think every, a lot of teachers get this every summer you know like well what if i tried this this year you know how would that turn out and it, it, that that kind of uh tinkering and experimenting and you know it's almost like making right um is is endlessly fascinating and fun and and something that you know i am still thriving on Cool. I think that that's a, a pretty good note to start wrapping up on. Uh, I want to be respectful of your time. Before we tell the listeners how to connect with you and give you a chance to issue the personal challenge to the audience, is there anything that I didn't give you a chance to say, Sean, that you'd like to? Uh, yeah. So I think in general for, for your listeners who might be catching this episode but themselves not involved in in education, I would I would ask I would just ask folks to tune in a little bit more um, with a with a critical eye to the to the conversation um, to to think about when they hear debate or when they hear people talk about education policy um, as we want to raise the bar for kids and for outcomes are we having a simultaneous conversation about raising the resources and the inputs um, you know childhood poverty is absolutely an epidemic in this country and one that we should be ashamed of and that affects learning and lifelong outcomes and this is uh, the school conversation needs to be a, an actually a childhood conversation and and I would just urge more people to invest in that conversation as it is I think an investment in our future I like that if people want to connect with you continue the conversation or just learn more about you where can they find you digitally sure so a good starting point is uh, Twitter I am at mr. underscore McComb that's a, a good starting place and then this year I'm I'm working with a nonprofit called teaching channel and if you were to go to teaching channel and and search Sean McComb. I'm on there with some some videos from my classroom, some blogging that I'm currently doing about how I'm trying to get better with my practice. You can check that out. And then uh, a buddy launched for me, SeanMcComb.com. So there's some some stories about me, some some clips, and all kinds of stuff. If you're still somehow curious about me, excellent. All of that will be linked to in the show notes at goingdeepwithaaron.com/podcast. Uh, before I let you go, Sean, I'm going to wrap things up with the personal challenge for the audience. Yeah, so um, personal challenge is uh, is the following. It's made a big difference for me in my classroom and just connecting with people. And that is to take take time every day. And I do this after the bell rings for dismissal. I take uh, 10 or 15 minutes and I write a few notes to kids uh, affirming who they are, what they did that day, what caught my eye, the positives, the good that they brought, um, to the classroom, it's my my time to practice a bit of gratitude for for people just making making choices to to do good and and to be good. 
And what I have found is that that has made me so much more positive and restored and kind of tricks the Tetris of my brain to start looking for positive patterns and, and finding the good in people that I work with. And I think that we can kind of replicate that uh, in any any realm of work or personal life to take the time to, to shine a light on the good for, that others give to us. Absolutely. Thanksgiving's coming up, but I think that it's a great lesson that you can always express gratitude and thanks for other people and, and, and what they do. Uh, another interesting anecdote I remember from your, your talk was that you'd actually sometimes read these notes aloud in front of the class back when you were doing Avid? Yeah, so I would, uh, I'd start class a couple days a week with a, uh, a high-grade compliment, which would just be, you know, face-to-face with one student, with everyone else listening, to me, uh, affirm them and, and talk about all the positives I saw in them, the future I saw for them, and what was great about them in front of all their peers. And that took a lot of vulnerability for me in the first place. It could have fallen pretty flat, but it ended up being pretty amazing, and the kids eventually ran with it themselves and started doing it for one another. And it, you know, it's one of those things you put good out there in the world, and it seems to find a way to multiply. I love it, Sean. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We just went deep with National Teacher of the Year, Sean McComb. Hope everyone out there has a great day. Thanks, Aaron. Thank you again to Sean for coming on my show. If you have not done so, please be sure to subscribe. Uh, make sure you can stay up to date on future episodes. But another thing that I'd really appreciate you doing is if you really enjoyed today's episode, felt like you took something from it, I'd appreciate it if you shared it with one other person, whether they're someone who's about to enter the realm of education or someone who's been teaching for a while or someone who you know thinks broadly about policy and about uh, just the way the world works or wants to be a better educator. I'd appreciate it if you shared this episode with them. And when you do, CC me on that share. Uh, my email is goingdeeparen at gmail.com. Once again, that's goingdeeparen at gmail.com. I'd love to be a part of the conversation. Love to meet, at least digitally, meet the people who are listening to the show, who are enjoying it, who are getting something from it. And uh, I, I think it would be a, a really cool thing. We've done this with a few other episodes. It's gone really, really well. And I'd like to do that again. So please share with one other person. And thank you so much for listening. I'm Aaron Watson. Hope you have a great day.